And this insane fact of knowing that, you know, 6.7 lakh crore could have been saved by investing five crores, which is what the Climate Risk Atlas actually costs. You are listening to Understanding the Future podcast. I am the host, Punit Gandhi, and this podcast is developed in association with Climate Center for Cities under the National Institute of Urban Affairs and the Ministry of Housing and Urban Affairs. This is a podcast where we discuss about the future of work in the field of climate change, urban development, innovation and sustainability with the help of leaders and visionaries working on ground as well as in the top management of public and private sector. Our objective is to better understand the future so that we can be prepared and intervene to enable climate actions in the urban areas. Hello everyone, welcome to the podcast Understanding the Future. I'm the host Punit Gandhi and today we have with us Amita Ramachandran. She is the CEO of India Climate Collaborative and she will help us in understanding the future of philanthropy and climate change. Welcome to the show Amita. Thank you so much Punit, I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so because we are talking about philanthropy, so let's start with very basic, like my understanding of philanthropy somewhere that it helps in developing research or implementation of some kind of social, socially important projects and which are not too financially feasible or in advocacy of uh, some kind of policy. So am I missing out on something or uh, am I right about it? Can you help us uh, understand objective of philanthropy in a better way? Absolutely. Yeah, I think you're, you're pretty close to the mark. I think a useful way to start thinking about philanthropy always is, you know, just from the word itself and the meaning of the word itself. Um, philanthropy means uh, for the love of humanity. I don't know if you know that. And though it's changed a lot over over time, and I think we see it changing a lot, especially in, in recent years, it's really not a new instinct for people. There is evidence for philanthropy and charitable giving that dates back really as long as humans have been able to accumulate wealth. And it's played a really important role in shaping the society that we live in today. I think one of the best examples of that is the philanthropy that that uh, founded and incubated the India Climate Collaborative, which is the Data Trust. I don't know how many people know this, but the Data Trust is almost 127 or 28 years old. It is a foundation that predates Indian independence. And some of the most remarkable things that I think it did was invest in building you know, legacy institutions, things that in normal times, I think we would expect governments to build, right? Hospitals, universities, research institutes, many of them that last until today. I really think that those sort of investments in that institution building is the hallmark of what philanthropy can do to support both government and civil society. And that's really where we believe the power of philanthropy is, right? It's that sort of third rung between private sector, public sector, and the public. And it's a really important societal tool that I think, you know, allows the public to be a shaper of society just the way that businesses and, and policymakers are, because it can be complementary in the ways that I mentioned that the data trusts were when they started to started out 127 years ago. But they also do invest a lot in what doesn't get covered between the, you know, the main shapers, the private sector and the, yeah. the public sector. And in many ways, it can also hold a 
a mirror up to the, those two rungs, right? And hold accountability yeah. to them and put things that are important to the public or that are important to the welfare of the public, put them back on the map and put them quite firmly back on the map. I think the yeah. interesting thing about that role that it plays is that it can make it quite controversial. And I think in recent years, we've seen a little bit more criticism of philanthropy because they, you know, what what right do we, we, we have to give them that place in our society, right? And I think one of the most interesting examples I've read about recently is the, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, um, Michael, Mike Zuckerberg's uh, uh, philanthropy, where of course he's accumulated so much of this uh, wealth from, from creating Facebook and so much of their philanthropy is going towards, um, to, towards education reform in the United States. And a lot of people ask this question of, you know, what, what gives him the right? What gives him the qualifications or the experience to be able to do that? Nothing really, other than the fact that he has a massive amount of money and that's where he's chosen to give his money. The other, uh, maybe slightly different example is, you know, Bill Gates. And I think yeah. for, for everybody in the development sector, the Gates Foundation, we can widely agree has done more good for global society than bad. Um, yeah. And still, when you think about you know, how much power that has given Bill Gates, where nowadays in global convenings, he gets to go and step on stage with all these state leaders from across the world. The interesting thing there is that all those state leaders are elected representatives. Who elected Bill Gates and who gets the chance to, to, to elect him out of office if we don't like what he's doing anymore? So those are some of the tricky things that we also have to contend with in philanthropy, but there's no denying that it plays a really critical role. And like I said, it's it's been a huge part of shaping the society that we live in today. And that's that's why the ICC was founded by and is focused on, um, on Indian and international philanthropies working on climate change. Absolutely, I agree with it. And uh, that is where one of the major things also comes uh, that we are interested and we also look towards is the future aspect because philanthropy, every money in philanthropy is being invested for the future. Mm-hmm. We are not investing something that, okay, uh, this is the direct return today. So if you're talking about research, a lot of philanthropy money is going into research which might not even be feasible, which might not even make it to uh, you know on ground it is just something mm-hmm. that's been funded over there and that's it uh, either if it succeeds it succeeds if not it does not yeah. so there is a lot of risk taking in that kind of investment which i guess no government can take so private sector does not bring up but so how does that function in world and indian context how how do we see that kind of risk taking and what all kind of risk taking in philanthropy, we are talking about in world and Indian context. Um, it's an interesting question because I would say that the the domestic philanthropic market, even though it's old, like I said, it is yeah. relatively new and new in its thinking in in India. Um, yeah. I do actually see that in our experience of working with Indian philanthropies, there's a much larger skew towards favoring, you know, on-ground immediate outcomes over the longer-term sort of systemic change. Even sometimes a bias away from funding research, there is this sort of, uh, um, you know, incentive to that. You know, in India, we have so many populations with very immediate needs, and that the the mandate for philanthropy is to serve those immediate needs, and sometimes that can be at the expense of 
um, making some of the broader sweeping systemic change that changes that can actually have lasting change. And of course, that's a generalization. Not all philanthropy does that. But I think with the younger philanthropies, that's usually how the the thinking behind what to give to even even begins. Right. You hear the stories of somebody, you know, sees an ill person uh, or has a family member who falls ill from a particular illness. And therefore that that uh, evokes a certain commitment to okay funding research to find a cure. Um, yeah. Or you see a particular community outside your your gate, and you feel very moved by the fact that they don't have access to clean water, and therefore you decide that that's that's going to be the the sort of goal of of the work that you do. A lot of philanthropy still is very intuition motivated in that way, and I think that makes sense. Again, if you go back to what the definition of philanthropy actually is, it is for the love of humanity. But I think one of the the flaws of that sort of thinking is that you know, the the primary form of concessional capital that has the ability to be risk-taking and the power to be risk-taking isn't actually doing too much of that at this time. But I do think that the, the current, the domestic philanthropic market is changing significantly. We see it increasing in quantum significantly. I think it's increased. Family Foundation giving, giving has increased almost 15% between 2014 and 2018. I think CSR is going up even more. So the, I do think there's there's some trends there that are really encouraging that show show different show a, a different future. I think that the reality that we exist in right now is that you know quite a lot of funding goes towards the most sort of basic uh, development outcomes. I think about 60% of philanthropy goes towards health and education outcomes. Over 60% of philanthropic funding actually goes to three states. Maharashtra, Karnataka, and Andhra Pradesh. So you also see that skew in, in geography. And sometimes that's really linked to, you know, how many credible and credible nonprofits do you have there? How many nonprofits do you have that, that, that have enough visibility that you would even know about them and therefore you would think to give to them? So it's skewed by, by some basically public awareness. And those are some of the things that we at the ICC are trying to shift by making sure that, you know, the really innovative, the really powerful solutions are the ones that are getting to the funders and are getting to the public attention. We think there's a lot more out there. And sometimes that can actually be the theory of change, right? That you don't decide to give money and then find good solutions, that you see a really good solution and it actually makes you decide you want to give or give more than you are giving or give differently than you were giving before. So yeah, I think that that the, the the field of philanthropy is changing rapidly, and that makes it a really exciting place to be. Yeah, that's a very interesting statistic because not being in the market, uh, we are not aware of this kind of skewed perspective of a lot of things that comes up into the picture, and mm -hmm. how ICC is trying to deal with it. So coming to ICC and how climate change is being dealt over here, because that is something that your organization and my organization, or at least my uh, Climate Center for Cities, with mm -hmm. whom I work, is trying to do and make a dent on those lines. And uh, so how is ICC trying to, you know, change that narrative, change that kind of funding in this space? It is just mitigation, is it adaptation? How are we trying to balance it out? Yeah, I actually think the best way to start by talking about the ICC is actually to start by talking about how and why we were built. So three years ago, I actually joined the Data Trust sustainability team. And like I said, the Data Trust is 127 years old, but our sustainability team was brand new. It was just being set up. We were a two-person team. 
And like most philanthropic portfolios, you know, you start out by doing a little bit of a scoping, you figure out what are some of the gaps in the ecosystem, where other philanthropies funding and what are some of the areas where, you know, then the data trust can, can play a unique role and play a kind of catalytic role. So we did all that work and we started looking, looking at the sector and realized, you know, it, it really was one big gap. I mean, there's, there was nobody else out there. There was no domestic philanthropy really doing any significant work on. And of course, there's some, some, some examples of, of the work that existed. But at that point, just three years ago, it was really minuscule. Global estimates of how much of philanthropy go towards climate change are less than 2%. And in India, the total quantum of philanthropic giving is much smaller. And I'm pretty sure, though we don't have enough data to really know this, um, that the, the percentage in India would even be lower. And so it, it became this question of, okay, you know, we have one option, which is to uh, be the first, you know, set up this portfolio, really makes a case to the trustees why we need to do this and fund a series of projects that we think can have, you know, great impact. And also, in a way, you can think about it as having outsized impact, right? Because we're the first ones really putting money into this field and encouraging this action. But there was also this larger mandate and responsibility, which is, you know, the data trust has credibility. It has convening power. It has an ability to bring people along with them. And we know that an issue like climate change is, it's too big, it's too systemic, it's too urgent for anyone active to do alone. It just didn't make sense for us to think that by creating a portfolio within one philanthropy, no matter how big or how small, that we would really be able to move the needle on this issue. And it became sort of our mandate that if we were going to do this work, if we were going to landscape the ecosystem, figure out where the funding is really needed, that we needed to bring people along with us and use some of the use some of the resources we had available, like the, the backing of the trust, like the convening power, all of those things to try and encourage other people to join us. So that was really the the, the start of the ICC, which is realizing yeah. this this major challenge we have ahead of us and, and so little support or peers to go at it with. And, uh, you know, we were built as a collaborative and I think the collaboration part of it is a really key, key a piece of not only our goal where we were working towards, but also a founding principle. In many ways, right from the beginning, we decided that we can't just be, you know, the big brother bringing a lot of other philanthropies with us. We have to be co-creating and we have to get a lot, of, a lot of other people to come together and tell us why haven't they funded climate change already? What are some of the barriers that they're facing? Because everybody knew it was an issue. It was just that there was a series of entry barriers that people would talk about, you know, not having enough expertise within their their foundations, not knowing what the organizations they could support to do that kind of work are, fundamentally not understanding what the challenge was and therefore how they could uh, how they could tackle it. So we brought some of these organizations together who we knew were very committed and wanted to do something and wanted to learn together. And together we co-created the mandate, the agenda and the structure of the ICC by bringing together these Indian and international philanthropies. And the common thing there really was this belief in the power that philanthropy has to play to convene government, business, civil society, and really create 
cross-sectoral catalytic change, right? So it's a way to, it was a way to de-risk it, to bring other people along with us by saying, it's not just you alone, we're all doing this together, but also to break silos. We knew that there was a lot of work happening all over this vast and diverse country. And sometimes there is a lot of reinventing the wheel because not enough people are connected with each other. Not enough people realize other people are struggling with the same issues. Um, there's a lot of redundancies and therefore wasted spending, like you said, you know, uh, research that gets created and it just sits within your organization when many other people could actually use it. Yeah. And also a way of sharing responsibility, right? That we all have this responsibility together and we all have the power to do something together. Most importantly, I think collaboration was a way to achieve scale. It, again, it's just too big of an issue, this great intangible that is climate change for one person to try and take on alone. So that was sort of uh, what created us. This group of philanthropies continues to be a guiding and an advisory force for the ICC to ensure that yes. you know we're staying true to our mandate to represent the philanthropic ecosystem and do what's best for the philanthropies that are our members. And the goals of the ICC, and actually maybe I'll even just say that the ICC was launched only earlier this year. It's been less than 12 months in January of 2020. Um, we are now the largest philanthropic collaborative in India and the only one focused on uh, combating climate change. We now have over 20 leading Indian and international philanthropists and business leaders who we count as our members, which includes Ratan Tata, Rohini Nilkani, Bloomberg Philanthropies, Hewlett Foundation, and many, many others. And our goal is to seek uh, is to seek to drive funding and visibility into the climate ecosystem, which we do in partnership with over 50 civil society organizations, including universities, think tanks, implementing organizations, and actually state and national government bodies. So that's sort of where the ICC is right now. To give you a little bit about you know, what, what we try to do, our goals are, we broadly talk about them in three ways, which is inspire, connect, and empower. These goals really reflect the broad vision we have for the levers that we think are gaps in the ecosystem right now. So Inspire is about, you know, communications, like you said, about narrative building, about movement building. Connect is about the power of networks um, and building those efficiencies within the fantastic ecosystem that already exists, even if it's small. Um, and empower is about, you know, the informed learning to action journey. So sort of investing in that training and capacity building, whether it's in governments or in think tanks, investing in funding knowledge gaps that exist that we know are preventing, you know, more bold action. Uh, all of that sort of work falls into the third one. And um, these, uh, this community of partners that, that we have with us over 50, like I said, are all organizations that bring immense expertise to us. And we've taken great pains to make sure that they represent the real climate ecosystem, right? So we don't just want the research community. We don't just want the implementing community. We know there are gaps even between those two communities where they don't speak to each other enough and not enough of our on-ground work is representative of the research and our research doesn't take into account the on-ground realities around the country. So this was an important part of why we were built the way that we were built. Um, and we try to do our work across two areas. One is, like I said, on engaging more philanthropies to come into the climate space. Uh, we try to create that enabling environment for philanthropies to try and demonstrate value for climate investment. So not just the why of climate, you know, why is it important? Why is it necessary? But also the how 
uh, by providing access to opportunities, connections, knowledge, capacity, all of the things that they said were gaps in funding climate and try and demonstrate the highest impact ways to invest in climate action. And then there's also a bit of a chicken on the egg, which I'm sure you know about, just that because there's not enough funding that goes into the ecosystem, the ecosystem is small. It doesn't have enough capacity to really be able to deliver on this big you know, action that we need across mitigation and adaptation. So with the resources that we have, we try and channel and direct uh, funding towards solving some sectoral challenges that move us collectively towards an ecosystem that can you know, make and deliver on really big bets for a safer India tomorrow. And I can talk a little bit about the programs we do, but I'm going to stop there because I just talked for quite a bit. <laughs> no, no, we, we will surely come to the programs as well, because I think that is where the crux of anything starts coming into picture as well, that how things are moving forward. Before we do that, uh, one or two more questions on the line that uh, how, how much are we looking at? So as philanthropy, there are 20 leading institutions and 50 implementation partners or 50 mm. partners, uh, research and implementation partners. What is the kind of quantum that we are looking at in terms of uh, focused approaches being given to climate change? Quantum of money or quantum of uh, resources, however we can put it. So this one is a particularly tricky question, I think, because, you know, for the especially in the US and in Europe, there are mandates that require private philanthropies to publicly show how much they, they give in a year. That doesn't actually exist for family foundations in India. Many of them okay. do anyway, but a lot of them yeah. don't. So actually one of the big challenges that we've been trying to figure out is how do we build enough trust in the philanthropic ecosystem to get to a point where we can start to actually ask people to share that data with us. You know, We yeah. know that it's really critical for us to be able to see the impact that we've had, but also to see the gap that still exists, right? For us to be able to meet that that level of investment we need to, to really make transformational change. So it's a great question. My short answer is that we actually don't know yet. There isn't enough okay. data for me to give you a good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but I, I can understand that because this is, this is something which is complex in itself. It's uh, not too... Uh, it, it has its own opacity as well. That uh, mm -hmm. And that is it. So the next thing I would like to shift is towards the collaborations and breaking of silos, because when we are working with so many organizations, uh, as a government organization, we also face this issue. We also face how do we break these silos so that more and more conversations can happen and transfer of knowledge can happen. How is that thing being brought into the system with ICC? Um, it's tough. It's tough work. Um, I think one one way, which is a very low tech way and requires a lot of capacity, is that we spend as a team, as a small team, we spend a lot of our time on calls or in meetings with our partners. And we use that. I think it's important, right? There's no there's no simple way of doing this, which is keeping in touch with the ecosystem that that, you know, really drives us right? that the ecosystem that we're trying to support. So we try to use every single conversation to continue to update that sort of landscape mapping that we did when we first started out. Make sure that we're constantly revalidating those hypotheses, which is, are these issues that we started out trying to solve, are they still the right issues? Are we still focusing on the right things? Or is the community and the ecosystem actually telling us that there's a completely different opportunity here, or that we're completely missing something, or that we're doing something wrong? So it's our way of um, constantly getting feedback about what our role should be and 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 what we're uh, what, what we're working towards. 
And I, we've developed some good ways of being able to track that internally and share that knowledge across even our organization, but also across all of the philanthropies that are members to us. So we use these um, quarterly meetings with all of our funders to give them an update, not only on what we're doing, but also to say, you know, this is what we're hearing from the entire ecosystem. And we feel like that's one of the, the privileges that we have for, for being a collaborative, right? And having yeah. the vantage point that we do have is that a lot of people know that we can be that honest broker, that third party that's yeah. thinking about solving sector problems and not just, you know, each individual problems or geographic problems. We're really invested in supporting the community at large. And I think that's gotten us a lot of great advisors because people recognize recognize how important that role is, right? And that it's a challenging role. It requires convincing a lot of people constantly about why this work is important so that the um, think tanks and the implementing organizations don't have to do that because it is a real, uh, it's a it's a drain to be able to speak to somebody who doesn't understand the, the major challenges. And I think that's something we've been able to do quite well is to be able to communicate those challenges effectively to an audience that maybe is starting from from complete scratch, doesn't know anything about climate change. How do you yeah. make them feel like it's not such a technical issue, which I think globally it has become right. People feel like it's inaccessible because it's too technical, it's too scientific. What what role can I really play? It's a doom and gloom story. We really try to flip that in how we communicate about climate change. We talk about the opportunity to really transform and reimagine, you know, the the future and reimagine our development to truly be sustainable. And I think that's been one of the things that got us um, support right from the beginning is this ability to communicate that you know, there's no pathway to sustainable development for India anymore that doesn't factor climate change in. Um, whether we're proactive about it or reactive about it, we're going to have to face it at some point. We already are. Um, yeah. So why not do it together? Why not be uh, uh, opportunistic about it and try and use this uh, systemic change to create a nation that we feel, you know, is, is much better for all of the people who live in it and protect especially the most vulnerable we try and use that sort of optimistic lens. And I think that's uh, that's a power that philanthropy has. You know, our, our yeah. currency is compassion. It's comparing, uh, caring about people. So that connects really well with the, the audiences that we work with. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, it is important because until and unless we can bring that on the table, compassion is on the table. I don't think so. It will be effective. Otherwise, we will mm -hmm. still keep on chasing numbers which might not be relevant at certain points. Uh, Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. I think that's one of the, the, the most stark learnings about the climate movement globally in the past decade, which is that, you know, we keep and we still see it today. We keep thinking that you know, if only we had enough evidence, everybody would understand what we're talking about and change their yeah. mind. And we just have to wake up and realize that, you know, it actually doesn't move people. Evidence doesn't move people. Methods and reasons and climate models, it doesn't yeah. fundamentally change the way that people think or how motivated they feel to be part of this conversation. We really need to flip that on its head and find a completely new way to communicate where you appeal to the things that matter to people, right? At the end of the day, humans are self-interested you have to find those things that matter to them and connect climate to that and thankfully climate is so all pervasive it's not hard it does connect yeah. to every single thing that matters to every single human but um stepping out of you know this is what matters to me to figure out this is what 
matters to the person I'm speaking to and I need to appeal to that to get them to understand why this is important. That is yeah. like at the core, I think, of the new climate work uh, for the next decade. Yeah, it, it, it's a fundamental human behavior change that we are also asking eventually that mm -hmm. whatever you have been doing has been not wrong per se, but there are some problems to it or some minor things that you can always change. Uh, so that I think is a quite complex topic when we are dealing with it. It's, it's a more systemic and fundamental issue than just scientific and technical. Uh, it, and once we get out of that box, that is when we realize that, okay, things need to be changed in a much drastic way than what we have thought about. Coming to ICC again, and uh, what are the different pro uh, programs that are being uh, run under ICC right now? Projects that are functioning under ICC. Yeah. Um, so we have chosen four program areas that have started this this year. Um, we and the the way the criteria for choosing them is primarily two factors. You know, how relevant is it to the work of the Indian philanthropic community, especially to you know Indian jobs and Indian livelihoods, which we know is of national importance at this time. And the second, of course, is potential for impact on climate change, which is you know both on adaptation and mitigation. We're very clear that the India climate story has to be about both, right? We we can't just prioritize one or the other. Then we need to find a way to to walk that line. And so the four areas that we have uh, uh, launched programs under are air quality, uh, water security, sustainable land use, um, and clean energy. Uh, within that, you, you basically have everything you need, um, but it really felt like those were the, and, and the, the articulation of those actually took a very long time for us. You know, we were like, how, how high, how, uh, how detailed do we go? Do we call it land use? Do we call it agroforestry? <laughs> um, yeah. And we realized that the bigger framing we can have it, the bigger tent our work can be, right? We can invite more people in it because they won't feel like they can't relate to the maybe technical terms that we're using or that we focus too narrowly on one thing. Um, and, and that was a, really the reason why we've kept it somewhat you know, broad. Um, and there is a layer that, that builds underneath all of these, which is our kind of foundational climate work. We haven't found a better term to call it, but it really is the, the work of sort of building that base understanding of climate change, literally climate 101, yeah. and understanding you know the difference between mitigation and adaptation, which might seem easy to you and me and really isn't that commonplace for most people. Yeah. And also an understanding of, you know, what are some of the, the events, the ongoing, you know, policy changes and uh, events that we see that we can break down for the audience that we have that uh, otherwise it's, it's hard to find kind of a nuanced view on how this, you know, I can give you an example of you know, the environmental impact assessment, which was hugely controversial this year. We knew that there was there were two sides to that conversation and that we were seeing a very polarized conversation in, in the media. So we made an effort to as part of our foundational climate work bring our our you know philanthropy as corporate leaders together and have a a briefing about the changes to the EIA get some environmental activists in the room also get some representatives from the NLEFCC and have a fair conversation you know um, a, a conversation that accepts that there is nuance to these decisions we're not trying to be an activist body but we do want to make sure that everybody gets a chance to hear both sides um, yeah. so through that work we're trying to make sure that 
you know, high quality information perspectives on on what's going on and an ability to understand the actions that somebody can take is accessible to everybody within our community. And that's sort of what the the foundational climate work uh, is. Okay. So uh, are we then specifically looking more on lines of, uh, if I can understand, mapping of the whole ecosystem to start off? And then more mm -hmm. of uh, things will be developed in this association so that, okay, this is what is required in each of these sectors. Because yes, all these sectors are important and inherent to climate change uh, because this yeah. is what is affected for us. So I, yeah. I, I, I'm assuming that this is how once the mapping is done, it will be then taken, the step will be taken forward accordingly. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, we have done many informal mappings, like I said, that we keep trying to update. One of the things that we're kicking off in 2021 is a, actually a formal climate ecosystem mapping, which will be a, a public resource. It'll be um, hosted, you know, on our website and also hosted on our partners uh, website, which is Ashoka, the Social Innovators for Public. Yeah. We're really excited to partner with them because they uh, globally have this sort of uh, trademarked way of doing network mappings. They, they use a sort of snowball method, which is very grassroots and it basically involves reaching out to climate leaders and then uh, interviewing them, getting their perspective on, you know, what are gaps in the space, what are strengths of the Indian climate community, and then asking them to nominate, you know, five other climate leaders and basically yep. trying to cover the entire, you know, extensive mapping of the ecosystem and then step back and be able to look at that mapping and see, okay, where are the crowded areas where there's actually like too many people and where are some of the areas where we expected, you know, if we look at our emissions map or we look at um, where some of the critical areas for, for India's climate adaptation should be, where are some areas where there actually are no organizations, no leaders, um, and then use that to direct more attention and funding uh, towards building capacity within those areas. I think the exciting thing about partnering with Ashoka, who are globally reputed, is that this is coming from their commitment to having more climate social innovation leaders. So for them, this mapping is also a way to be able to identify who all the climate innovation leaders are and then use their resources to support them in, in building capacity, which we know that in, in across the development ecosystem is something we, we really face um, as a challenge, right? The capacity to be able to build organizations and scale up really successful organizations. We do often find that once the, all NGOs reach a certain size, they really start to struggle with some of the issues of scale. And I think they're great organizations that support them in that. That's a non-climate, you know, agnostic issue that that can, where significant capacity building can be built. So that's that's the sort of Ashoka mapping. I think if I go into each program, you will be here forever, Puneet. So I'll give you one, one example of a program that I think is, uh, is quite an interesting one. It's a good example, both of, you know, the topic of this podcast, which is, the role that philanthropy can play and also critical gaps in the climate ecosystem that we're trying to fill. So, you know, like we've talked about our, our conversations in climate change globally, especially are usually skewed towards um, combating climate change and basically climate mitigation, right? And the reality is that in India, especially climate change is already happening. Many of us are already experiencing those effects, whether we know to call it climate change or not. Um, there's an interesting statistic by the United Nations Interagency Standing Committee report where they, they talk, it's a report on return on investment in emergency preparedness. And they say that for every 75 rupees that's invested in prepared, climate preparedness, it saves over 150 rupees in future response. 
And if you extrapolate that ratio to India's losses, which have been estimated to be about 13 lakh crore on disaster management in the past 20 years, you can safely estimate that the government could have saved close to 6.7 lakh crore, which is about 89 billion US dollars, um, if such systems for disaster preparedness were in place. And in addition to saving lives and livelihoods, that savings is also at an economy level could have been directed to you know, much more productive economic activities. We're just not at the level yet where we are prepared for those sort of risks. They sort of happen to us. We've seen it happen this year, especially uh, with all the cyclones on the east and the west coast. They, we, we get a few days notice and then they happen and they really destroy livelihoods and they cost a huge amount of public spending that can be avoided. Our vision, of course, is to create a future, and that's something I'm sure we share with you, create a future where we are able to minimize that impact and minimize it especially for vulnerable communities, but also for infrastructure and for institutions that we know a warming India will really impact. Um, <clears throat> and the main way that we, we see an ability to do this is by mainstreaming climate risk assessment. It really has to be um, adopted by every business, by every government body, and, and factored into all kinds of planning, right? They have to see the value in it for themselves. And they have to, and of course they will, because it's a matter of protecting lives and avoiding destruction. And right now we're currently lacking that data, and actually not as much about the data, but we're lacking it in a packaging that is accessible to the people who actually need to use it, right? Useful to the right people in a way that makes sense, that's compelling, that convinces people to actually start to use it or, um, in planning. It's a big overall systems gap in climate communications at large, like we just talked about, but also in this specific area. So to tackle this for Indian climate risks, the ICC is partnering with the Council for Energy, Environment and Water, I'm sure you know, think tank in, in India, to develop a comprehensive climate risk atlas. Um, that's what the program is called. The climate risk atlas will be designed you know, around this concept of what we can measure, we can manage, or at least try to manage. Yep. Um, and this insane fact of knowing that, you know, 6.7 lakh crore could have been saved by investing five crores, which is what the Climate Risk Atlas actually costs, is it just, it's mind boggling, right? This is exactly the kind of role that philanthropy can play. The ICC is not, yeah. is, we're only funding part of this. There is still actually some of it that needs to be co-funded. But these are the kinds of catalytic investments that philanthropy can make that have outsized impact, right? You're talking about yeah. just a magnitude of, of, of difference in investment and the impact that you can have. And by funding this knowledge gap and using the sort of interesting resources that philanthropies have, like our credibility, our connections to government, right? Uh, the trust that people have in that we are, we're, we're doing this work for the right reasons, you can make sure that to, you can make sure to get that knowledge piece to the right government representatives. You can fund training to make sure that it's actually usable and, and edited to make sure that it's, that it's uh, accessible to the right people and basically ensure uptake. And eventually the idea is that this piece will be owned completely by government bodies like the NDMA, et cetera. And that's a goal that we're pretty confident will happen because of the immense benefits we know it will have. But sometimes it takes you know, a philanthropic body that sees that potential to invest and sort of kickstart that, that project. I mean, kickstart that change. 
and specifically about the, the piece that we're funding, it's, it'll be a district compendium, a section of this larger risk atlas, which will have a sector-wise vulnerability assessment for Indian districts um, and an index that sort of highlights the most vulnerable districts in, in India and, and what they are most vulnerable to, including extreme weather events, um, you know, coastal flooding, urban heat stress, water stress, crop loss, vector-borne diseases, biodiversity collapse, all of the things that are relevant in, in India. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a one deep example of a program that we're running. <laughs> Thank you. That that was indeed quite insightful because uh, once we get into this, I, I'm sure like if I had more time, I would have asked you many more questions on these lines. Uh, we can talk about it after the podcast. I'm happy to. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so coming, I, I'll again step back on what all conversations we are having and look at it again from a larger lens that when we are talking about philanthropy and how do we look at its future now how do we so there is also a lot of buzz going about individual giving and how, how does that come into picture how do we look at philanthropy maybe 10 years down the line uh, what are your thoughts on that i am i'm pretty sure that what we'll see is a rapid you know professionalization of the film film topic and the development sector i and there's a few key things that i think we'll see within that i think one is a a willingness to invest more in, in institutions and not in programs i think we're starting to see this already you know that there's a uh, has hesitation that everybody feels about paying for somebody's salary or even paying for a high quality, you know, talent salary, which means that sometimes we are not attracting the best best talent, right? And the, the, yeah. the development sector is not competitive with the with the private sector. I see that changing because people are are seeing the value of having, you know, really, really uh, well-trained people um, uh, solving some of our greatest challenges, right? It makes sense that we would we would hire that kind of talent. So I also see better paid um, professionals working in the sector and attracting better talent to the sector, which I think will will have a huge impact. I think at a larger level, I think we're going to start seeing more strategic, not charitable giving. So going from that sort of intuition based philanthropy to thinking about questions like you know. Uh, moving away the, from the sort of incremental efforts that we have right now, which are really important, but thinking more long-term about, you know, if we think about, uh, let's say 2050, what what do we want our nation to look like? What do we want our energy and economic systems to look like? And then how can philanthropy create that momentum to make that transition happen? I think those conversations are going to try and are going to drive more of the decisions that philanthropic giving makes. Um, and another big thing, and maybe this is hopeful because we are the India Climate Collaborative, I do see a lot more collaboration. I think people are starting to see that the benefits largely outweigh the costs of, you know, the transaction costs of coordinating with a lot of people and trying to build consensus and trying to find alignment. I think people see the, the significant transformational systemic national impact you can have when you work together. Um, yeah. And and I'm very hopeful that that's, that's the sort of future that we're working towards within the philanthropic sector. Yeah, that, that does sound more optimistic. And I hope that does come true as well, because we do need more and more professionals working in development sector as well on these lines. And it's just a need of the hour, I feel, than anything else. And coming to, based on that, coming to the last question is on the lines of uh, what are the different skills you feel are important to be in the sector of philanthropy uh, that anyone can have? Um, I get asked this question a lot, and it's actually a tricky one because I feel like we need 
everything you know i i actually i think and especially because i know that the audience for this podcast are, are young people who might be thinking about how to fit in i know that there's a lot of people who worry that they can't get involved because they don't come from a climate background and i didn't come from a climate background but i know that there's a special lens that i can put on this communication barrier that we were talking about right how yeah. to think beyond just the research because i know that i don't come from that research background i just have to put that person that i'm speaking to in my shoes and say would i have listened to this <laughs> if i was uh, sitting on the other side of the table if not then i have to find a different way of communicating and um, it's it's helpful for me with my background in the development sector to appeal to the interests of the philanthropic community we need that sort of understanding of how to put yourself in the shoes of all stakeholders that make important decisions that you know make a difference on climate whether that's in businesses whether that's in government or whether that's in the the development sector or even in your community to use that skill that understanding to be able to make climate part of every single conversation that's really the only way that i see us being able to tackle this huge problem is if everybody makes it their own um and that's going to require everybody coming with all of their unique skills and trying to figure out how to apply it to the problem and i promise you that there is a there is a way so yeah. if you want to talk about it i'm happy to happy to speak to anybody who's interested in figuring that out yeah, absolutely uh, thanks a lot amita uh, i think this was a wonderful for me to understand how philanthropy comes into picture and what it does uh, if i have missed out on anything and you would like to cover it uh, please go ahead the last thing that maybe i, I want to end on is that yeah. i read actually last year a great quote by bill mckibben who i'm sure you know a climate action icon yeah. he once wrote that if you're younger than 60 you have a good chance of witnessing a significant destabilization of life on earth as you know it you know massive crop failures apocalyptic fires imploding economies i think he said epic flooding you know climate migrants all of this stuff um and regions that are just becoming uninhabitable because of extreme heat or permanent drought and if you're under 30 which i am um you're all but guaranteed to witness that and you know in one way that's that's a doom and gloom climate story which we do try and stay away from but in another i think it's it's really an invitation to reimagine our future to be better for everybody right to be more equitable to be more livable and there's still a chance to join in this is the start of the decisive decade where we really start to make these changes we need everybody to be involved in shaping this future and we can only do it when everybody joins in so just reiterating my last part when um climate becomes a part of everybody's mental models this is this is how we really solve the problem um so that's what i want to end on the last thing i want to say is thank you puneet for having having me and having the icc on the show i actually listened to a couple of podcasts so i was a couple of your podcasts while i was preparing for this and i'm so impressed in every podcast how you're able to get into each separate subject in such a deep way and ask such thoughtful questions so i've been really lucky to be on here and thank you for having us Uh, thank you amita it is my pleasure as well that icc and you could come on board uh, because eventually the idea is to understand this in all different perspectives possible i think that is when we can start building upon what we are trying to build either climate innovation sustainability or urban development these are all very complicated topics just to be done by one person that they require absolutely <laughs> massive amount of work force So thanks a lot. Well you're doing a time. fantastic job. Thank you. Thanks a lot. 
and thank you for being on our show i really hope that audience also feels the same way and they also get as many good things out of it as you have gotten out of it thank you thank you bunny you have been listening to understanding the future podcast to know more about climate center for cities visit us at www.c-q.niua.org and follow us on linkedin twitter and instagram the show is conceptualized hosted and produced by punit gandhi you can listen to the show on apple podcast google podcast and spotify so don't forget to subscribe to podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues thank you and stay tuned for the next episode